We have been in a series on the book of Nehemiah, and this is our last week or two here before we start talking about anxiety as we head toward the holiday season. Um, but Nehemiah 8 is very important because one of the principles you're going to hear me speak about again and again today is that repentance must always precede revival. We all want revival, we all want renewal and rebuilding in different parts of our lives, but unfortunately, or fortunately, as you'll see, one of the prerequisites for that is repentance. Uh, we've been in this series now for seven weeks, and the ultimate question we've been asking is how do we rebuild? In areas of our lives, whether relational, marital, parenting, financial, vocational, how do we actually rebuild? We have just been through the unthinkable over the past two years. All right, it, it was unthinkable. There has now been 4.5 million people that have passed away globally from this pandemic. Um, some of you in your countries of origin are seeing it badly right now. Well, we're with you in prayer. We're with your people in prayer. Economies have crashed. Industries have shut down. People have needed medical assistance that haven't had the access to it over the past 18 months. We've, like, we've literally had somebody in this community who was doing most of their, um, their, their appointments via Zoom during their pregnancy. And because of that, only found out three weeks before their due date that there were twins in there. This is the, this is the level of bananas that we are in, folks. Um, 631,000 people lost their jobs in New York City in 2020. Many of you in this room. And so it's been a lot. It has been a season of lament and grief. Mental illness has unraveled in a different way. Loneliness, emotional unhealth. And yet for many of us in this room, there is this small window, not for all of us, but for some of us in this room, there's this small window where we're seeing the fog just lift a bit. And we're going, maybe, just maybe, we can get back to some level of normalcy. Maybe things are trending in the right direction. Maybe there's a chance for us to start rebuilding in different spaces of our lives. And so we obviously, we go to the book of the Bible that can in some degree, not all, but in some degree serve as the blueprint for rebuilding where life has crumbled. A book about building back life and future and dignity among the rubble. It's Nehemiah. And over the weeks, we've talked about how to handle opposition in the rebuilding process. Many of you, the, 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 the fog started to lift over these last two months and then another crisis came or another surprise hit. We've talked about how to handle that opposition. We've talked about the importance of being honest about emotion and desires, being attentive to where God is already at work. We've asked questions like, where do I rebuild? With whom do I rebuild? Or why am I rebuilding even in the first place? Last week, Pastor Amanda and Macho over in West Queens did a phenomenal job asking, are we losing sight of who we are in the rebuilding process? It's important to remember who we are and our being in the midst of our doing and our ambition. And so we start to wrap this thing up today by introducing you to Ezra. Here's some of what we know about Ezra. Ezra is likely a descendant of Joshua, another big deal in the Old Testament. Ezra brings a wave of exiles back to their home in Jerusalem. And is known specifically, well known for this chapter. 
chapter where he stands up in front of this entire city and begins to reintroduce the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. He stands up and when he read it, but he simply begins to read the law and we see something very peculiar happen. People just are, are, they're moved. They are deeply moved. There is this crescendo that actually takes place where there's reading and there's some active listening and the narratives are discussed, characters are introduced. We hear about Deuteronomy and Leviticus. They talk about Moses and the exit out of captivity in Egypt. But then it, it moves from, from that to some level of reflection and then contemplation and then all of a sudden to crying and then all of a sudden to celebrating and party throwing. There's just this, this crescendo which is showing us the melting and the moving of the heart of a nation. It's a crescendo that you can see in some of the most epic of films. It's a crescendo that you can hear in something like Beethoven's Fifth or John Coltrane's Love Supreme. That's the type of movement we're talking about here. And as we see Nehemiah 8, we see this transformative journey play out. And so what I want to do over the next few moments is actually look at three different movements that must take place if we're going to actually see true and healthy and spiritual rebuilding and revival in different parts of our lives. Whether financial, whether vocational, whether emotional health, relationship status, whatever it might be, there is three different movements that we have to see take place if we're going to see revival. But like I said before, revival doesn't happen. Renewal doesn't happen. Rebuilding doesn't happen unless repentance takes place. And this is part of that repentance process. And so movement number one is an exposing of assimilation. Movement number one is an exposing of assimilation. At first glance in Nehemiah 8, it, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Ezra stands up, he's a religious holy guy, and he just begins reading religious holy script. That's what religious holy people do. We get up and we read religious holy script. This is what he's doing. Don't kill anyone. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. He goes through the law. Don't worship another God. He talks about Exodus. He talks about Leviticus. He talks about Deuteronomy. In our modern day context, we go, this, this, this is weird. Why would this actually lead to weeping? If I stood up here right now and started reading Deuteronomy and Leviticus for the next 10 minutes, half of you would be snoring. The other half of you would leave. You'd just be like, I got a lot to do today. I got to go, Dan. I love you. And I know you. I know you would leave. But that's not what happens here. And the question is why? Why does this holy man get up to read some holy scripture that is deeply about tedious Levitical law and weeping occurs? Well, because their assimilation is being exposed. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean that the Babylonian Empire who took these exiles captive did not simply bring the Jews into their geographical kingdom and say, hey, bring your ethnicity, bring your cultural context and let us celebrate it. It's not what they did. No, they systematically pulled in the cultural influencers of Israel. And they would teach them the Babylonian ways and they would feed them Babylonian food and they would have them celebrate Babylonian festivals to the degree that by the end of these Israelites' lives, they would be teaching the Babylonian way to the next generation. This was the level of assimilation that would take place. 
It was a systematic assimilation that took place over time as the empire of Babylon and later Persia tried to be the ultimate global power. And assimilation, and this is so important, assimilation, when done well, will change values and shift identities and make something that was once second nature and intuitive to an individual feel completely foreign, if not forgotten. And assimilation happens here in New York City. If you've gone from horrible to horrible, you've been assimilated, right? If, if Sundays have become about nothing but brunch, you've been assimilated into the New York City culture. If you have found yourself talking to yourself out loud with other people around you don't know and you're okay with all of that, you have assimilated to the New York City culture. And those of us that have lived here a long time or been born and raised in this city, we know that there is so much of the New York City culture that is good and should be celebrated and people should adapt to it. But the underlying hum of anxiety that doesn't go away, that's not good. It's normal, but it's not good. We've assimilated to that. The feeling that you cannot stop or somebody is going to get your job, that's not good. It's normal, but it's not good. We've assimilated to that. What I'm suggesting today is that there is a set of principalities and powers at work in this city that attempt to assimilate us toward addiction to power, Unhealthy escapism, transactional relationships, nonstop ambition, and to actually define and view ourselves by what we do and what other people think of us. And far too often we don't see it, this is what good assimilation does, we don't see it until a different narrative, one even more compelling, challenges all that we've actually been assimilated to. And I share that with you because I want you to see how big of a deal this moment would have been for those listening to Ezra and why they are weeping at some holy guy reading some holy text. They are hearing about one God who made them and loves them. One God who promises his presence and power and protection and gives them guidelines to experiencing all that. And none of this is part of the ethos that they've been assimilated into in the Babylonian Empire. I can remember sitting in a church service, hungover, one of the first times I heard the gospel about Jesus and understood that my purpose was actually to know the love of God and to make God's love and grace and mercy known to other people. Blew my mind. I thought for certain my purpose was supposed to be about getting into the best law schools, practicing law in a way that accrued power, influence, money, and status. I just thought that was normal. I had been assimilated. I remember the first time I heard about parenting in a gospel-oriented way where, where I learned that parenting is about actually discipling and molding and mentoring kids in the way of Jesus so that we can release our kids to the world and they are a blessing to people. Growing up, I just thought having kids and parenting was about making sure they were good, safe, and prosperous. 
well-educated. I've been assimilated to it. The first time I realized that marriage, relationships, were not just to feel love or extend love and have physical intimacy, but actually because you could have a relationship where you were better together and more fruitful for the sake of the world than alone, blew my mind. But I have been assimilated to something different. And so all of us want to rebuild right now. In some area of life, we're going, I want to rebuild. I want this to be different. I want my health to be different. I want my my vocational success to be different. But the first movement we have to experience is, is an exposure to how we've already been assimilated. This is part of the repentance process. And repentance has to be a prerequisite of rebuilding and revival and renewal. And so a few questions. What about life right now? What about your life right now could be off? What about your values could be something that you've adhered to simply because New York says we should value that? What priorities are simply priorities because we've been told by our family of origin that this is a priority? What have we assimilated to to a degree that it is now unconscious and intuitive that we need to name and start to interrogate and question. As Carl Jung says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will just call it fate. Movement number one, exposing of assimilation. Movement number two is experiencing revelation. There's something special that actually happens when our shortcomings and failures collide with God's perfect character. And part of what's special about it is it just doesn't happen often. But, But when those two things collide together, we call it revelation. It reveals something in us in a way that is transformative. That's what revelation is. If you come from a charismatic background, you just need to know that is the simple definition. When something is revealed that is transformative. And often what happens though is that we get one or the other. Where either one, we're honest about our shortcomings and I can go, yes, I have failed to be the perfect husband and yes, I haven't parented well this week and yes, I've stopped short and settled for less and I've lied a bit here and there. I'm not that great. But, 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 As honest as I am there, I'm not clear on who God actually is. Or two, I'm clear on who God is, whether I view God to be Allah or Yahweh or or Jesus, right? I'm clear on who God's character is, but I'm really dishonest about my shortcomings and failures. But neither of these imbalances transform us internally. See, the person that experiences shame and guilt but still views God as some distant deity or some demanding judge or some, you know, micromanaging puppet master will continue to live their lives in a state of despair and discouragement because there is not some hopeful, grace-filled, and merciful force out there that can change me inside. And the person that understands that there is a God who forgives and empowers and loves, but who doesn't see their own sin, will continue to see God as irrelevant as well. Some distant deity that has no place today because there is no need for a source of grace if I haven't acknowledged that I actually need that grace. 
And so here we have Ezra, who opens the book. All the people see him. He begins to read. He praises the Lord, the great God, and all the people lift their hands and respond, amen and amen. And then they hit the deck, face to the ground in worship. And the Levites come around and they start to make their way through the crowd explaining what all of this teaching means. And then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, the day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. The only reason you have to tell people not to mourn or weep is because what? They're mourning and weeping, right? As they listened, they heard about a God who is great and good and glorious and one. But they heard about it in the face of their exposed assimilation. And so what's happening in this moment is they are realizing that they have missed the mark. They have not been living the way that they were created to live. There was an experience of both regret and hope in this moment, and they collide. And that collision is what happens when the Holy Spirit reaches into our lives. That is the revelation that is part of the repentance process. There is regret that they had missed out on truth all of these years, and there was still hope that the truth could now lead to better days ahead. This is the collision that leads to revelation, which is part of the repentance process. This was key. We all want revival. The American church wants revival. We just don't want national repentance. We all want to rebuild individually, but none of that can happen in a healthy, spiritually deep way unless we have first repented. And this is what we're seeing happen here. A collision of God's holiness and their sinfulness. A mixture of regret and hope. Now I know people don't generally like to talk about repentance. But part of that is just we've poorly defined it throughout our time. And so one of the ways that we define it here at Mosaic again and again and again is agreeing with God about reality. This is what's happening here. They're hearing God's reality. They're exposing the fact that they haven't lived within that reality. And what you're about to now see in movement three is an agreement to that reality. And this is important. Agreement isn't simply mental consent to some idea. There are 2.2 billion people on the planet that kind of mentally consent, intellectually consent to being Christians, that Christ is Lord. Y'all know that's not how many look like Jesus. Agreement doesn't mean intellectual consent to something. Agreement means embodied participation. True faith isn't faith in a formula. True faith isn't even faith in faith. True faith is faith in a person, the person of Jesus. This is the worldview of Christians around the globe. And when this takes root in our minds and hearts, it changes our behavior. Agreeing with God about reality changes your reality today. It'll change something about your reality today. And this is what you start to see happen here. Especially in verse 12, then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They participated, 
And this is movement number three. Movement number three is faithful participation. They participated by throwing parties. This is good news for us as a church. It means following Jesus actually entails throwing parties. We should be known as the best party throwers on Roosevelt Island and beyond. Revelation without participation isn't revelation. It's just good information. And good information does not equate to transformation. Revelation will always lead to faithful participation. And this is what we are starting to see here in this passage. Eating, drinking, celebrating. Because they have been told that though their regret is deep, this God's love runs deeper. Because they've been told that though they've missed out on so much life, life now with God can now run so much wider and longer than they ever thought possible. This is what faithful participation looks like. See, if I truly believe that Jesus will provide for me, then I faithfully participate in generosity. It changes the way my bank account looks. If I truly believe that Jesus opens his entire life to me, I faithfully open up my apartment to a bunch of other people, some of them that I don't actually even like right now. But I do that. If I truly believe that Jesus' love is for all people, then I start to open up my table and the chairs around my table to those with different ethnic contexts, different political biases, different sexual orientations, and different socioeconomic categories. This is what faithful participation looks like for us, Mosaic. We are all rebuilding, but we have to be honest with the fact that rebuilding, renewal, and revival in any part of our lives will not happen before repentance does. And so let me just end by, by, by playing Ezra for a sec with y'all. You know, we've talked about this over the last week, but... but These parties didn't last. Nehemiah would soon have to return to find this great, glorious, holy people now not living up to any of the guidelines once again. Problem is now they actually know and they're still not living up to them. Sounds like us, right? But this is what's happening. And the famous cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah, in anger would forcefully discipline people aggressively and violently reprimanding them, trying to force them to be a righteous people. This is what Nehemiah does at the end of the book. Forceful, controlling. But God, especially the one fully revealed in Jesus, we say God is exactly like Jesus and there is no unchristlikeness in God. God in Jesus is not a God of force or control. Brad Jerzyk says he is one of consent. God does not force his love upon us. God looks for us to concede and to surrender to his love. And though God's consent is one reality, another is that he does not and has not stood by as a passive spectator. He consented to participate himself. 
God consented to participate in the human condition fully. In love, God saw our predicament and through the incarnation of Christ entered into our affliction and pain and ambiguity and questions and skepticism and doubt and anger. He underwent the brunt of these forces with us in the flesh. Said another way, God in Christ participated fully in our trauma and still does. Participated fully in our trauma and calamity as the lamb who was slain on the cross. He gathered up and suffered every human disaster across time in his death. He consented to us to bear the gravity of all of our sin. Past and future on that cross. The Christ like God drinks the cup of our suffering. You want to know who the true and better cup bearer is? It's not Nehemiah, it's Jesus who comes into the world and bears all of that, concedes to our violence, slain before the foundations of the world, and still defeats death so that we can party with him, so that we can eat and drink and celebrate and give generously and open up our homes faithfully because he is Lord and leads us. But none of it happens without the Holy Spirit. None of it happens without the spirit of the living God coming into an individual and into a people and into a church and into a country and allowing his holiness to collide with our brokenness in a way that reveals Christ the slain lamb. And so that is what we ask for today. We ask that for our church here, we ask that the spirit would come in power and in might in intimacy, and we ask that the Spirit would come upon the city of New York and the country of the United States of America in a new and fresh way so that we can actually rebuild, not to what was, but to what God has always had in mind for us, as those who he loves. And so let me pray, and then we will celebrate through the sacrament of communion. Lord, We love you. We ask, Father, that we would interrogate the ways that we have assimilated into the culture of our families and into the culture of this city and even into the culture of the church. And what is not of you, we want you to reveal it. We want to put a name to it and we want to repent of it. And God, we bring all of our shortcomings to you, all of our faults and failures, our guilt, the things that we've done that we should not have, the things that we've left undone that we should. We bring our shame, who we've bought into, who we are or aren't. We bring all of that to you and we ask that your holiness would come to us in a new and fresh way, in a way that sets our hearts on fire. We want that. We want that for Mosaic, for all of our churches. We want that for the churches around New York City and the United States of America. We want that for the city of New York, God. Holy Spirit, would you come in a new and fresh way, empower 
and in might, would you bring us to a place of repentance so that we might fully experience intimacy with you and revival and renewal and rebuilding in every space of our lives. We want this. And you say, as your kids, we can come to you and ask and approach with confidence. And so we do. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.